sentire media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 164, The Rise of the Borgias. E non posso più accucciarmi e così ritorno su Lasci i colli nelle valli tra due salici piangenti Io ritrovo la speranza di un amore che ormai fu We are following the descent of French King Charles VIII to Naples to lay his ancestral claim to the throne of the kingdom using him as a tour guide to see what's going on in the Italian peninsula in the 1490s. You, my dear constant listener, of course, know this, but in case you are stumbling across this episode in search of the Borgias, you are most welcome. We last left Charles at the southern border of Tuscany, definitely not a bad place to wait, for us to finish looking over the rise and fall of a highly influential figure in Florentine history, Gerolamo Savonarola. Charles won't get a lot further this time either. You may remember that the king had reason not to be too pleased with the Pope at the time, Alexander VI, since he had refused to recognize the French king's claim to the throne of the Kingdom of Naples, citing the fact that the Pope's predecessor, Innocent VIII, had already decided for the designated heir of the King of Naples, Ferrante, who had already raised his son Alphonse to the throne. In exchange for his confirmation, Pope Alexander received lands and titles for his children in the Kingdom of Naples, which was a big item on his to-do list. So he was very much invested in Alphonse II maintaining his throne. That is why he was none too pleased when Charles started off his little escapade and, by December 1494, was knock-knock-knocking at the gates of the Eternal City. It also made him particularly nervous that his arch-enemy, Giuliano della Rovere, stick a pin in that name, fearing for his life, had escaped and was warmly welcomed by Charles. On the 31st of December, Charles entered Rome as a conquering hero in triumph. The Pope legged it from the Vatican Palace over to Castel Sant'Angelo, the ancient fortress which was originally the mausoleum of Roman Emperor Hadrian, which you can still see to this day. Allow me an interesting, well, I find it interesting, digression here. To cover this distance, Alexander would have used a raised bridge parapet-like structure, which, again, you can see if you visit Rome today, known as the Passetto del Borgo. This parapet was originally a fortification built by the Gothic king Totila. Of course, I don't need to remind you, and your perfect memory, that he ruled over the Gothic Kingdom of Italy during the war against the invading Byzantine Empire, which would eventually put an end to the reign in the mid-6th century. The wall was then built upon around 852 by Pope Leo IV to protect the existing basilica at the time, and then in 1277 during the reign of Pope Nicholas III, and also under later popes here and there. From this elevated position, the guards could nip revolts below in the bud, and prisoners could be taken in secret to the papal prisons. It was not used only in times of danger. This walkway was used by certain popes, for example, particularly Alexander VI, who, as we will see, had 
a certain appetite for the company of the ladies to go and visit, let's say, intimate friends. Stemming from that little bit of gossip, legend would have it that if a man is suffering from an issue with his virility, he can solve his problem by going back and forth 77 times. Considering that that is around 60 kilometers in all, I believe it would just make one tired more than anything else. Putting aside the digression and making a long story short, Alexander and Charles eventually reached an agreement since the last thing the king wanted was to get bogged down in Rome and would eventually need the Pope to get crowned king of Naples. With vague promises in this sense, Alexander sent him on his way. The deal, as was often the case, included a hostage. Alexander offered his son, Cesare. Cesare went along with Charles but soon slipped away unseen and came back. It seems that when his coffers, supposedly bearing treasure for the king's campaign, were opened, they turned out to be completely empty. In any case, we have gotten the king past Rome and we'll have to leave him waiting once again to get a little background on Pope Alexander VI, one Rodrigo Borgia. Let's go back just a bit to remember how the Borgias came into the picture. We know that in 1442, Alphonse of Aragon claimed the throne of Naples after being designated heir, although she had changed her mind afterwards, by Queen Joanna II. When he came to Italy, among the men that he brought with him was the trusted Bishop of Valencia, Don Alfonso Ibarja, who served him very well in Italy and was also well liked by the Pope, Eugene IV, who made him a cardinal. His name, however, Borja, was a bit hard to the Italian ear, so it was changed to the name that would resound through the centuries and go from a real historical family to the stuff of legend. The association would often be with corruption, debauchery, intrigue, and murder. The name in question was, of course, Borja. Now, Alfonso Borgia had a sister, Isabella, who in 1431 had had a son, our little Rodrigo Lansol y Borja. Interestingly, it was the mother's, Isabella's name, that would rise to fame, and not the father's surname, Lansol. In the year 1455, when another pope, Nicholas V, died, we had a shining example of someone being in the right place at the right time. As is often the case, the opposing factions of cardinals were divided down national lines with Italians, Frenchmen, and Spaniards, as well as others, and even along family lines, among the factions, with the Italians split between the prominent families of the Colonna and Orsini. This often meant that a stalemate would be reached for the election of a new pope, with no one candidate being able to reach the two-thirds majority required for election. In these cases, a transition pope was often chosen, as old and feeble as possible, so that the factions could have some time to prepare for the next election, but not too much time. So, at 77 years of age, Cardinal Alfonso Borgia was the perfect candidate for a transition pope. Indeed, his papacy only lasted three years. However, he was quite active in those years, and most importantly for our story, he was able to sort out the children of his sister Isabella, particularly Rodrigo, who was quickly made a cardinal, although 
he didn't really have either the age or the requisites at the time for it. In the end, things went over smoothly, even when the nephew Borja was made vice-chancellor. It was not at all rare for a bit of nepotism in the church, and plus, Rodrigo was well-liked. He was attractive, although not really handsome, but he was quickly able to win people over, to charm them, both men and, more notoriously, women. What's more, he was actually a really good administrator and kept his post under successive popes, amassing quite an estate, managing in the time to purchase the luxurious Palazzo Cesarini, which, if you are familiar with Rome at all, lies between Castel Sant'Angelo and Campo dei Fiori, the latter being, in my humble opinion, one of the most disappointing sites in Rome. He went from being well-off to becoming stinking rich, one of the most wealthy and influential men in Rome, in Italy, and perhaps in Europe, since in this time he became closer and closer to their most Catholic majesties, Fernando of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. He also had time for a bit of naughtiness. Although he lived a relatively simple life, he did love to show off spending money on big important events, and and he didn't mind a little fun on the side. Indeed, still during the papacy of Pius II, he was scolded after a return from a diplomatic mission to Siena for having participated in an orgy there with a group of wives of some important noblemen. He didn't stop at orgies either. In this period, Cardinal Borgia had his first three children, the less famous ones, Pedro, Isabella, and Gerolima. Although they didn't reach the levels of fame of their half-brothers and sister later, Pedro, for example, participated in the taking of Granada from the Muslims, completing the Spanish unification, which was a source of great pride for the Borgia. The cardinal's household grew. You could see at least 200 of his men dressed in yellow and red, plus slaves, and that's not even counting the employees as a cardinal. It was one of these clerical employees who performed a rather unusual service in the autumn of 1474, presiding over the wedding of one Giovanna Cattani, known as Vannozza, and one Domenico Darignano. The service was unusual because the groom was not actually going to be the husband. Darignano was a stand-in for Cardinal Borgia so he could live happily with his lover Vannozza close by. Although Borgia supposedly had many, many lovers, before, after and probably during Vannozza, she would be his favourite. One year later, the first son of Vannozza Cattani and Rodrigo Borgia was born. He was named Cesare. Sooner than expected, Darignano died, and a miracle must have happened because the husbandless widow managed to have two more children, either from the Holy Spirit or from Rodrigo Borgia. The second child was Giovanni, Juan, and the third, a beautiful blonde girl who was named Lucrezia. Later, Vannozza would have two more husbands, Giorgio de Croce and Carlo Canale, and one more son, Goffredo Joffrey, and we are not certain if the fourth was actually a Borgia, as the cardinal himself often was heard to lament. Vanotta's time in the limelight ended in 1483. In that year, her children were taken away from her and sent to live with the cousin of the Borgias, Adriana de Mila. It was her son, an Orsini, 
originally named Orsino Orsini, who helped out the good cardinal by marrying a certain Giulia Farnese. Once again, however, Orsini was the groom, but not the intended husband. Giulia was the new lover of Rodrigo Borgia. She was 16 years old at the time. Incidentally, the name Orsini means little bears, so the guy's name was Little Bear, Little Bears. Anyway, along came the fateful year of 1492. We've seen that although for the USA that was a founding year, in Italy it was overshadowed by two illustrious deaths, that of Lorenzo de' Medici, who had contributed to keeping the delicate balance of the main Italian powers, and that of Pope Innocent VIII, which meant, of course, a papal election. The main contenders were the above-mentioned Giuliano della Rovere and Ascanio Sforza of the powerful Milanese Sforza family. Days of voting went by, and despite negotiations and bribes, neither candidate managed to get ahead. Things in Rome started to get restless. Outside the Vatican, armed guards from various different noble factions eyed each other nervously in case anyone tried to make a move, at the same time also keeping an eye on the uneasy crowds. In the end, after five days and a whole night of conclave, the new pope was announced. It was neither of the two contenders. Indeed, Ascanio Sforza had backed down in favour of the vice-chancellor who had done such a good job over the past 37 years, Rodrigo Borgia. Sforza may have been helped along in his decision by the four mules loaded with silver and gold that supposedly showed up at his home. So it was that a 61-year-old Rodrigo Borgia, with what was basically an act of simony, became Pope Alexander VI. Now, the real fun could begin. Thank you very much for listening. This time around, I would like to thank my PayPal donors. Recently, Tommaso and James have donated. Thank you very much. And of course, long-time recurring supporter, Karen. If you would also like to support the show, you can go to ahistoryofitaly.com, click through to the support page where you'll find the PayPal button. Otherwise, you can join the Patreon supporters and have access to extra content. If you'd like to get in touch, you are more than welcome to do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or through our social media. You'll find all the buttons on the website. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.